Since at least the time of the Renaissance, love, of course, has been a fascination, really a captivating influence for so much of our culture, for so many people. They have written novels and plays and poems. They've produced films, sung songs in an almost unending stream. In fact, you could say in many ways the modern world has been transformed by the concept of love like never before in history. It's almost universally recognized in every area of life as the greatest of virtues, the highest of things to seek. So much has been written and studied on the subject. Some people would ever wonder if you could surpass the the exquisite expressions of love in a Shakespearean sonnet or or maybe a, a Jane Austen novel or a Jane Austen movie or a Jane Austen play or a Jane Austen whatever, you know, they just wonder if you can ever get past something like that or maybe their favorite Broadway musical, maybe their their favorite song by their favorite artist. They just wonder if if anything else could be written that could really top all of that that has come before us and all that that's celebrated in our society. Well, today we come to a text which unquestionably surpasses it all. And it surpasses all of them because in many ways it has nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with the love that all of those things speak about and all those things celebrate. Nothing to do with the love so celebrated by the world, which essentially when the world says, I love you, what it typically means is I love me and I want you. I want you to gratify me. I want you to do something for me. I want you to please me. I want you to serve some desire that I have. Sometimes even in the religious context, all you see is love that is conditional and sporadic, out of convenience, and only a feel-good love. Well, this chapter has nothing to do with any of that. It's it's an exaltation of a different kind of love that isn't the sappy romantic love of pop culture and songs. It's not the nice feelings and dreamy romance. It's not even the love of warm affection and fervent desire. In fact, there's really nothing in the chapter that speaks at all about your feelings. It's a love, rather, as Paul will tell us in verses 4 through 7, It's a love in the face of the undesirable, the difficult, the trying, the rude, the ungenerous, the irritating, the hopeless, and the unbearable. That's the kind of love that's exalted in this chapter. As a matter of fact, it's a kind of love that's exalted throughout the Scripture. The word, of course, that's used here is the familiar word agape, which if you're a student of New Testament Greek, you're very familiar with. But if you were a common Greek speaker of the day, you wouldn't hardly know at all because it wasn't that common. But the New Testament writers picked it up and began to use it, primarily speaking of God's love always in the terms of agape. But it's not the word itself that carries all the connotation, but the concept, the concepts that are behind it which define the love that Paul has in mind. I mean, just to begin with, we could go over to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, I invite you to turn there with me because it is perhaps uh, one of those passages that best defines this for us 
There are so many that celebrate love throughout the Scripture that we could turn again and again to all of them. But, but here in one of the most straightforward passages, you find this simple uh, two-fold contrast of what love really is. Paul begins in verse 7 of Romans 5, speaking about human nature and human love. He says, one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. That is to say, someone that we would characterize as good, someone we would characterize as worthy, someone we would characterize as having the, 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 the kind of, um, uh, of life that would make all of our efforts worthwhile, we might be willing to do something for them, we might be willing to sacrifice, we might even be willing to die for someone like that. But then in verse 8, he says, God demonstrates his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Implication being while we were unworthy. While we were sinners. While we were still unrepentant. While we were yet unrighteous. While we were still not lovers of God. Not seekers of God. Not followers of God. While we were still sinners. While we were still rebelling against Him. And against His word. While we were still in all of this. Even then, Christ gave Himself up. For us, this is so antithetical to the, what the world celebrates as love, all that they build as their concept of love, because the world celebrates the love that is supreme because the object that it supposedly loves is supreme. It celebrates a love that's able to say to someone, I love you because you are so magnificently better than anyone else in the world. Well, the Bible celebrates a love that is supreme because the nature of the lover is supreme. The nature of the object really has no concern. I love you despite the fact that you are the most common, the most ununique, or in some cases, the most unlovable person of the world, in the world. Paul says this is the kind of love that God demonstrates to us. He demonstrates it, of course, in the cross. It is the defining model. It is the defining model behind what Paul says here in Romans. It's the defining model behind 1 Corinthians 13. Everything he says in that chapter is ultimately built against the backdrop. Although you read in 1 Corinthians 13, nothing about God, nothing about Christ directly. That is to say, God is never mentioned, Christ is never mentioned, and yet God and Christ stand behind all of it. He is the defining factor in love. Not only that, it's not only defined by the cross, it's only defined by God's nature. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. He is love. That is His character. That is His nature. You could no more fully explore uh, the concept of love than you could fully explore the concept of God's nature. It is endless infinite, and yet it's who He is. He's the ultimate benchmark of love, and so when we speak about love, we're ultimately speaking about God. When we speak about biblical love, that is. And like all of God's character, like all of God's nature, like all of God's action, it is ultimately determined by who He is. That is to say, you, you could say that God's love is ultimately unmotivated. 
There is no motivation outside of himself for love. That is, at the very core, that's the definition of who God is. He is the one who is completely and supremely independent of all factors outside of himself. God doesn't exist because of anything outside of himself. He doesn't act because of anything outside of himself. And he doesn't love because of anything outside of himself. To put it in a biblical phrase, God has compassion on whom he has compassion. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. That is to say, the determining factor of God's compassion, the determining factor of God's mercy, and the determining factor of God's love is God himself. That is so antithetical to the world that they couldn't even begin to understand it. In some cases, it would appear to be unloving. Unloving to them. Not to recognize or to take account of some supreme virtue in someone else. So this love that Paul speaks about in this chapter is defined by God's character. It's demonstrated by the cross. And we might add to that that it is expressed in the commands of God's word. All the law, all the prophets, all that is written, uh, written in the scripture, we're told, is summarized by love. Remember, this was Jesus' great statement in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. That is to say, all the word of God is summarized on these two things. Paul himself will boil it down even more when he says the whole law is fulfilled in one word, Galatians 5.14, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul even, even gets more simplistic with it. He says all the law is fulfilled in this one commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself. You say, well, why does he give one and Jesus gives two? Because he understands that while God says we must love him. The way that finds expression is by loving those things which are visibly in front of us. That is with loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Or as John says in 1 John chapter 4, how can you claim to love God whom you've not seen if you can't even love your brother who you have seen? John Calvin says love is called the fulfilling of the law, not that it excels, but that it proves the worship of God to be real. God is invisible, but he represents himself to us in the brethren. And in them depends, uh, in them demands, I should say, what is due to himself. Love to men springs only from the fear and love of God. Therefore, it would be wrong in any person to attempt to separate our love of God from our love of men. So all the law and all the prophets, basically all of the word of God can be boiled down to those two commandments, or Paul says boiled down to one. Commandment to love. But you have to understand, when we're talking about boiling this down, we're not talking about a reduction. This isn't getting rid of God's word. Some people like to use love, even in a religious context, to sort of silence those who would want to draw attention to the commandments of God or to the principles and the precepts of God's word. Some people want to use love to try to maneuver around and eliminate standards of righteousness and holiness. 
to disregard the teaching of God's word or to diminish it in some way. But they misunderstand. This is not, this is not a reduction. When Jesus says all the law is fulfilled in these two commands, he's not eliminating, he's adding to your burden. This is what some lawyer discovered when he came and asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what does the word say? What's written in the word of God? Well, this guy apparently had heard Christ teach. So he answers, parroting back to Christ what he had heard. Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Jesus says, well done, go do that, and you will live. Well, the guy may have felt a little bit of the pressure and a little bit of the burden of that all-encompassing demand, and so he wants to pare it down and reduce it. So he says, who's my neighbor? Jesus proceeds to tell him a parable about a man who fell into a ditch because he was beat up by a bunch of robbers and then a couple of religious and pious people walk by conveniently sliding uh, past on the other side of the road so as not to inconvenience themselves until some despised and rejected Samaritan comes along pouring out oil on the man's wounds and out of his own pocket bringing forth money to put him into an inn and covering all of his expenses until he's fully recovered. This is, this is love. It's loving those who you would normally despise. It's loving those who you would normally ostracize. It's loving those who aren't in your circle, who aren't in your clique, those who you would normally disregard or whatever it might be. Jesus says this is the standard. See, when he, when he says all of the law and all the commandments are fulfilled in this, he's not reducing your burden, he's expanding it. This is why James says in James 2.8, look, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, committing sin. If you favor one person above another, if you show partiality based on a person's worthiness or attractiveness or appeal, if you show partiality, you're committing sin. The summary of the law doesn't lower the standard, it raises the standard. It demands the same kind of love for every person in every situation, regardless of their worthiness. In fact, James goes on to expose the sort of false compassion and the superficial platitudes of religious people that they often sort of put on display in the name of love. He says in James 2.15, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. In other words, there's a kind of love, he says, that's all words. Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Go and trust God, He'll take care of you. I'm praying for you. But the demand of the royal law, the demand of love, will not allow that kind of superficiality. Faith characterized by that, by a failure to act is a dead faith. 
the dead faith. Now that brings us full circle back to 1 Corinthians 13. Because right here, what Paul is essentially telling us is the same thing that James tells us. That, that any kind of spiritual life that you have that doesn't have this kind of love, it's a dead spirituality. Any kind of knowledge you have that doesn't have this kind of love is a dead knowledge. Any kind of ministry you have, any kind of gift you have, any kind of expression of your spirituality that doesn't have this, it's a dead spirituality. In fact, he will go on in verses 7 through through, uh, uh, excuse me, four through seven, to list out 15 different characteristics of love. Every one of them are given in verbal form. That is to say, this has nothing to do with the individual feelings, the sentiment, the, the, the whatever it is is going on in your heart. This has to do with the concrete actions which characterize your life. And what Paul's going to tell us in this is that a love without that kind of action, a love that shows partiality, a love that discriminates, a love that does all that is not a demonstration of true faith. A love that demonstrates the character of God is a love that loves sinners, it loves the difficult, it loves the trying, it loves the irritating, it loves the people who push your boundaries. It demonstrates the character of God It manifests the love of the cross. And it fulfills the law of God. That's the love that Paul exalts in this chapter. But before he gets to all those defining actions. He wants to challenge the Corinthians. And he wants to challenge you and I. He wants to challenge us in our approach to our spiritual life. All of those who would approach spirituality with a loveless Christian life. He wants to challenge all who would assess themselves and evaluate themselves spiritually by any other standard than the standard of love. Since it's the ultimate definition of God's character, since it's the ultimate demonstration of the cross of Jesus Christ, since it's the ultimate summary of the law, It only makes sense that it would be the ultimate standard that we would use in sizing ourselves up spiritually. And that's really what Paul is speaking to us about in these first three verses. He writes, you remember, to a group of people who who clearly have already demonstrated as we've gone through the book of Corinthians that they are all using all kinds of standards to measure themselves, which are not God's standards. They were sizing themselves up, for example, back in chapter 8, verse 1, based on their religious knowledge. And Paul has to tell them, look, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies others. So here they were going around puffed up and inflated in their own minds because of their doctrinal acumen, because of their religious orthodoxy or whatever it might be. And Paul says, that's that's the wrong standard. More particularly in this context, Paul's addressing those who size themselves up based on what they perceived as their spiritual giftedness. Or we might say their respected, uh, respective ministries. The way they perceived they were being used. 
exalted in their fleshly minds, taking their stand on a demonstration of their spiritual giftedness. And so Paul places this chapter right in the middle of his whole discussion in chapters 12 through 14 on spiritual gifts in order to correct their ungodly pride and their faulty assessment of themselves spiritually. And what he's basically going to tell them is what James tells us, that that faith without works of love is dead, that knowledge without love is dead, that doctrine without love is dead, that spiritual gifts without love is dead. It's dead to you and it's dead to the church. It's useless. In fact, as we read Paul's opening statements in 1 Corinthians 13, you get the sense that any, any spiritual gift that you may claim as something special is essentially dispensable to your spirituality, but love is not. As a matter of fact, he will tell us at one point that all these gifts will pass away. Knowledge will pass away. Tongues will pass away. Prophecy will pass away. But love will endure forever. In other words, you could be stripped away of all that stuff that you use to to brandish your your spirituality in front of other people. You could be stripped away of all those ministries, all those giftedness, all that position, all that stuff. You could be stripped away of all of it, but you can't be stripped away of love. It is at the core of our spirituality. Listen to the way Paul frames this in the first three verses. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I've gained nothing. Now, Paul's point is simple and it's powerful. He he sort of launches out of his discussion in chapter 12 about all these spiritual gifts and he picks up on a couple of the prominent ones. To, to basically drive home this point on, on how we measure ourselves spiritually. And he wants the Corinthians to understand that a, a life without this kind of godly love is no benefit at all. And he makes it in three summary statements. He first of all tells them that a life without this kind of godly love has no spiritual fruit. It accomplishes nothing. It brings no benefit to the people who are around us. He says it's like a, a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And he goes right, by the way, right to the heart of the problem in the Corinthian church, the gift of tongues. It was apparently the gift that was causing the most pride and the most discord and the most disruption within the church. And as we get into chapter 14, we'll see that he labors diligently in order to bring about a correct understanding and to, to uh, 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 turn away the abuse of that gift. So he goes right after this, that they would have seen this gift of tongues, they would have seen as the greatest sign of their spirituality. And he begins to point out that even with that, without love, it's useless. It doesn't accomplish anything. Here he presents the gift hypothetically, or we would say even in an exaggerated way. In fact, as you move through all three of Paul's statements here, it's obviously obvious that he's using hyperbole, that is to say exaggeration, 
to drive home his point. He repeatedly, for example, in verse 2, he uses this word all. He speaks about uh, prophetic powers to understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And then, and then uh, even having all faith. In verse 3, giving away all I have. He, he uses this over and over again. Even though down in verse 9, he makes it clear that in this present life, we don't know all. In fact, he says, now we know only in part. And we only prophesy in part. So even though he knows that this is not even a reality, he uses the word all to exaggerate his point, to draw by hyperbole the people into his argument. Each of these stretching uh, the concept to the extreme, we would say even the impossible to make the principle clear far beyond the reality of what could ever take place in their life, far beyond what they had even the capacity to do, he's exaggerating to make the point. Now, that's important to understand because when you come to verse 1, some people fail to see the hyperbole. They read Paul's statement about the tongues of men and the tongues of angels, and they suggest that what Paul's doing is he's delineating between the everyday ordinary speech, the tongues of men, and then the, the, the extraordinary or supernatural speech, which is the manifestation of the gift of tongues. This is particularly popular with modern-day charismatics who are reaching for some biblical justification for their modern phenomenon that they like to call the gift of tongues. It's obvious to all modern observers of, of tongue speakers, that's what, what's being passed off as the supernatural gift of tongues is nothing more than rambling gibberish. And that's been increasingly documented as we've seen. It's been increasingly scrutinized. And so modern day tongue speakers have, have raced to find some verse in Scripture that they could claim as justification for this incoherent babble. They're looking for some verse that would dupe their followers and silence their critics into acknowledging that all this nonsense is somehow supernatural. And so here in verse 1, they think that they have found just what they're after. This is the typical charismatic argument that this is describing a type of language which transcends the human uh, uh, limitations and and human characteristics, a, a kind of heavenly language or or speaking and spiritual language which goes beyond worldly linguistic rules. It's a heavenly language, and so it can't be evaluated in any way like any other language. Many of them today are even acknowledging that clearly what takes place in Acts chapter 2 is the supernatural ability to speak human languages you've never studied. But yet when it comes to this passage, they say there's a different manifestation of tongues, this heavenly language. It's the language of angels. Of course, they don't reckon with the fact that down in verse 8, Paul says this, these tongues will cease. That is to say, a, sort of an inconvenient truth that their interpretation leaves the angels mute for the rest of eternity. If this is indeed the language of angels not what this is about. It's not Paul's meaning. He's not suggesting that tongue speech is some sort of heavenly babble. He's using hyperbole. 
He's sort of exaggerating the point. He's saying, look, if I had the ability to speak all of these human languages, and even if I could speak languages from heaven, even if that were possible, he says, even with all of that, if I don't have these accompanying acts of love, I'm nothing. And it accomplishes nothing. Corinthians, no doubt, probably felt like tongues was the greatest establishment of their spiritual worth within the congregation. They may have imagined that by by putting on some display of tongue speaking, it would have been the thing which should attract the most interest and gather the most listeners and, and lend the most ears to what they have to say. And what Paul says is the exact opposite. He says, look, you're nothing more than a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, these would have been familiar instruments to ancient Greeks because they were used very commonly in the worship of pagan deities. The the worship of Bacchus and Dionysius and Sibylline, they would all use these gongs and these cymbals as they went into their, their cultic worship experiences, employing narcotic incense and droning chants along with loud clanging cymbals in order to disorient their followers so that they sort of were lifted out of their ordinary experience into another plane. Maybe that's what Paul had in mind. Maybe it's the association he's trying to draw. But whatever it is, the point is clear. It is both an unpleasant and in many ways a useless, a useless noise. These crude and ancient gongs and cymbals were basically capable, probably not much better even today, capable of producing noise, but no melody. No real song. So Paul says, this is, this is the way you're living? It's useless. It doesn't produce anything. It doesn't do anything for anybody. It doesn't have any spiritual fruit. And you can take tongues out of the way. It's not tongues necessarily. It's any spiritual gift. Just stick in there whatever gift, whatever ministry you may think that you have, if it's teaching, if it's serving, if it's administrating, if it's giving, stick it in there. And what Paul's saying is if you have, no matter what your gift is, if you are accompanied by rude and arrogant and impatient and unwielding, unloving actions, you are undermining You are short-circuiting whatever kind of good you may think you're accomplishing through your ministry. You're basically bypassing all spiritual fruit. You're undoing with your life what you supposedly are doing with your gifts. No spiritual fruit. Because you're not walking in the Spirit. You're not demonstrating the character of God. You're not manifesting the work of the cross. You're not fulfilling His Word. So you're accomplishing nothing spiritually. Secondly, Paul tells them a life without this kind of godly love has no spiritual standing. No matter how you want to evaluate yourself, no matter how you want to think of yourself, Paul says you are nothing. That's exactly what he says at the end of verse 2. You can have all these gifts of prophecy and knowledge and faith. You may have all kinds of people flocking to you. You may have people following you. 
But no matter what you may use to evaluate yourself, if it's the size of the ones who are, who are with you, if it's the amount of prestige you have, it doesn't matter. He says you are nothing. You have no spiritual standing. In verse 1, he had just used one simple gift, the gift of tongues, but here he, he multiplies that. He uses two, maybe three gifts. Some people think he's talking about the gift of prophecies to understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Some people think he's talking about the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge, along with the gift of faith. Remember, we, we delineated these back in chapter 12. The gift of prophecy is the ability to understand things which previously have never been revealed and, and cannot be known by, by human means. That's the gift of prophecy. And then the gift of knowledge is the, the gift to be able to apply that in various contexts, whatever that, whatever that truth is that has been revealed. And so Paul's saying, look, you can understand things which no one else has understood, you can have a, a, a sense of profound knowledge about the Creator and about all the creation. And not only that, you can, you can show the ability to even know how to apply some of that. And you can have some prestige because of not just your orthodoxy, but because of your profundity. You may be able to wax eloquent about eschatology and soteriology. You may know how to speak about election and and Trinitarian doctrine and all these complex doctrines. You may be able to do all of that stuff. And what he's saying is, if you don't have the accompanying acts of love in your life, you are nothing. Stack yourself up against all of those who cannot match your knowledge, who cannot match your insight. Do it if you want, but you're nothing, he says. Because what makes you something is being like God. Demonstrating His character. Demonstrating what you've learned in the cross. Fulfilling His word. Even faith, he says. You might have faith. So as to remove mountains. He takes the grandest illustration of faith that Jesus ever gave. The most most glorious concept of faith. Remember we talked about the gift of faith. It is that, that gift that the Lord gives to certain people in order to see beyond the obstacles and to be able to lead people through whatever it might be. Sometimes it's a Gideon in the Old Testament who's able to take just 300 little soldiers and go against the forces of Midian in the thousands and overthrow all of them. Or sometimes it's the faith of a man like Paul who in the midst of a sinking ship in the Mediterranean Ocean is able to stand up to the crew and say, if you will trust in God, not a single life will be lost. God sometimes gives this gift of faith to people so that they're able to inspire and able to lead people through difficult circumstances. And what Paul says, you can have that. You can have a whole host of people following you. And if at the same time your life is characterized by the arrogance by, the, by the, 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 the irritableness, by the rudeness, or any of those qualities in verses 4 through 7, you are nothing. You may have accolades, you may have followers, you may have standing in the eyes of men, but you're nothing in the eyes of God. What makes you something? How do you measure yourself? How do you assess yourself spiritually? It's these spiritual actions. Patience, 
kindness, not not envying, not boasting, not arrogant, not rude, not insisting on your own way, and all the others. Paul says not only that, not only is there no spiritual fruit in this life without love, not only is there no spiritual standing, he says there's no spiritual reward. There's no spiritual reward. Look, you can give away everything you have. You can deliver up your body to be burned. But if you have not love, I gain nothing. Gain nothing. Now, you might be struck by all this because you might think giving away all I have, I mean, isn't that loving? In fact, the, the word is... The word is uh, for giving away is a word for a small piece of bread. It's the same word that Jesus used when he dipped bread in the cup and gave it to Judas. It's a small piece of bread. And so it has the idea of giving away in small portions to a bunch of different people. He, in other words, Jesus is saying you might help a ton of people. You might have a reputation because of your generosity everywhere. You might have this grand reputation and yet... If you, at the same time, have a life that is insistent on its own way, it is rude, it is impatient, it is unkind. If you have all of that, it's nothing. Shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we we all know. Been in the church a while. We know how people use even acts of sacrifice and generosity to draw attention to themselves. The same same basic principle. I love me, and I want you. I may give all. I may give some big gift, but what I'm really looking for is a pat on the back. Like the Pharisees, Jesus says in Matthew 23, they do all of their deeds to be seen by men. They expand their phylacteries. They they make all their pronouncements in order to be seen by men. Or he says over in Matthew chapter six, you remember this same warning when he's giving us. His Sermon on the Mount, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be seen in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is all throughout scripture. Giving, sacrificing is never presented as a zero sum loss. Everywhere you go, there's a promise. Jesus says, look, the one who's left father and mother and brothers and sisters and goods and houses for my sake will receive a hundredfold. There's always this promise that, that the light and momentary affliction and losses that we have uh, in this life cannot compare to the eternal weight of glory that is there in heaven for us. There's always the promise that we're building with precious stones and metals and that, that, that we will receive a reward at, at the judgment seat of Christ. But there's also the warning, as Paul gave back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that if you build with wood, hay, and straw. Everything will be lost. So many people build this way. You can go into churches and worship centers. 
people doing religious deeds. And the whole episode is a big show. The whole thing is about drawing more attention to yourself, gathering more eyes on what you do. It's all about getting your own way, being the center of attention. Paul says you have no spiritual reward. What a shame. For whatever reason, basically give up everything in this life and then to lose it in the next. Because you misunderstood how to measure yourself spiritually. You misunderstood what really is the assessment that God will use. Paul says, look, you can even give up your body to be burned. We're told by early church fathers that, that, that there were some people who actually craved after martyrdom because they thought that it would give them sort of spiritual stardom. They, they wanted to be in the spotlight, even if for a moment. Paul says, you can do all that and still have nothing. No reward. No reward because there's no demonstration of God's character. There's no fulfilling of God's law. There's no understanding the cross of Christ. This is where love comes from. It comes from God. This is what love is defined by. It's defined by the cross. This is how love is expressed. It's expressed in His Word. And what Paul's saying is, if you want to really measure yourself, you've got to properly understand love. It's not the love of sappy sentimentality. It's not the love of, of some feel-good action. It's the love that faces the unlovely. It faces the irritating. It faces the, the difficult. It faces the trying. It faces the rude. It faces all those people. And it still brings forth actions of love. Because it flows from the heart of God, from the love of God, which has been poured out in our heart by the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with prayer to our Savior. Oh Lord, what a sobering reminder this morning. And how we feel challenged again recognizing how little we are willing to measure ourselves by our lovelessness how quick we are to measure ourselves by everything else Lord I pray that you would guard our hearts and minds from doing that I pray that you would make us a, a spiritual people that you would make us a loving people loving because it's it's what your word demands of us. Loving because it's what we see in your precious cross. Loving because it is the nature of our Heavenly Father. It's what we want. We want to be those whose fruit is abundant. Whose standing is meaningful before you. Whose reward is great. Because we've understood and been taught love by you. Help us, Lord, we know will be the accomplishment only of the working of your spirit and the purifying of your word. Make us loving people like yourself. Pray these things in Christ's name.